0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6 1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg.
0: And I'm Eve Hallam. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore issues that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider family secrets— What kinds of consequential secrets do families keep? How have they changed over time? And what's the impact of keeping them?
1: I've read a lot of family sagas, both fictional and non-fictional, and they often include family secrets. So I'm used to thinking about the reasons behind and the effects of secrets on one particular group of people, you know, one family unit. But I had never really considered before we started working on this episode, Sort of broader societal patterns involving family secrets and what those patterns tell us about our communities and about the times that we live in. I love that our guest today, Margaret K. Nelson, brings this new to me lens to a topic that might be tempting to dismiss as frivolous or lurid, but in fact is quite important.
0: I had a similar reaction, and I'm excited to have this chance to share Margaret's insights with everybody. But first, a little more about her. Margaret is the A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Sociology Emerita at Middlebury College, where she taught for more than 40 years. Her latest book is called Keeping Family Secrets, Shame and Silence in Memoirs from the 1950s. In it, she draws from more than 150 memoirs describing childhoods shaped by family secrets during the period between the aftermath of World War II and the 1960s. She focuses on six categories of secrets revealed time and time again in these memoirs, including the institutionalization of a child, unwanted pregnancy of a daughter, and the Jewish ancestry of one or more family members. Margaret has written a number of other nonfiction books as well, including Like Family, Narratives of Fictive Kinship, and Parenting Out of Control Anxious Parents in Uncertain Times.
1: We started by asking Margaret how she defines the term family secrets. Here's what she said I define family
2: secrets in the book as something that has consequences if it's revealed it can challenge an individual. It can challenge a family. It carries some kind of serious consequences, and in some cases, even personal danger. That's, for example, the case with revealing in the 1950s that your parents or were communists or that somebody was a communist. It could be the case today, revealing that somebody in your family does not have proper documentation to be counted as a citizen. The secrets that I chose to deal with are secrets that have consequences for family dynamics, because if they're revealed, something will happen.
1: And why, as a sociologist, is that definition helpful? What does it tell us?
2: I think it tells us something about family dynamics that really most sociologists haven't explored at all. It tells us something about the lengths to which individuals will go within a family to keep a secret from seeping out or being exposed in some way. I'm not sure we've looked extensively enough at the ways families, members of families interact when they're trying to constrain each other.
1: And your example that you gave about someone having or not having citizenship papers, that might be particularly problematic in a time like now or different times. And so it tells us, I guess, something about the society as well. That's
2: right. I think the secrets we keep tell us something about the times or that the times tell us something about the secrets we're going to keep. I think that there are a lot of secrets that people keep in families that don't depend on the time period. People are always going to try to conceal violence within families or alcoholism or drug abuse, a series of problems like that. As a sociologist, what I'm interested in is the links between Social norms, social values, a particular historical period, and the secrets that are kept during that time.
0: You studied family secrets during the baby boom era from the end of World War II until the social transformations of the 1960s. Why that particular time frame? What was it that interested you?
2: Well, I think that there are two things I can say one is personal. That's when I was growing up. So it has a particular draw for me, what was going on during the 1950s that I didn't see. I lived in a suburb. Everybody in the suburb seemed to have pretty, quote, normal families. And it's true, people would disappear. Occasionally, a teenage girl would disappear, and we knew what was going on there. But I didn't know much about how people experienced a set of problems in the 1950s. So one is personal, I'm recovering my own history. But the other is, it was a period of particular conformity. It was a historical time when only one sort of family was allowed, at least for white middle-class people. You had to be married, you had to have two parents, you had to have a heterosexual family. Nobody could be gay, lesbian, or trans. And then the question arises, well, what happens if you couldn't conform? What happened to the people who had to violate the norms? And that became an object of interest to me.
1: What does the persistence of these family secrets tell us about contemporary social norms?
2: In the last year, some of the concerns that were prevalent in the 1950s have become concerns again in ways that have pretty much astonished all of us. For instance, the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida means that gay boys or trans children or girls with lesbian yearnings in Florida might be as likely to keep that secret as they were in the 1950s, given the Dobbs decision Girls are going to be pregnant and have to hide it. They may have to be hiding the fact that they gave up a child for adoption if in fact they find themselves pregnant, unable to have an abortion and carrying a child to term at a moment in their lives when they don't want to keep a child. I would also add that in the 1950s, having parents or being a member of the Communist Party was something that could bring you great danger. I'd say today being undocumented has a similar kind of danger attached to it. And that children who grow up, for instance, with parents who are undocumented, have to learn who they can tell, who they can talk to about it, who they can reveal that secret to. And of course, it's a very dangerous secret because if people, the wrong people find out, your parents could disappear forever.
1: In your chapter about the secrets surrounding the institutionalization by parents of certain children in the family, you tell the story of a famous psychologist named Eric Erickson. When his son Neil was diagnosed with Down syndrome as a newborn, Dr. Erickson informed his older children that Neil had, quote, died at birth and that this topic was not to be discussed again. Neil had not in fact died, he was institutionalized, but Dr. Erickson and his wife didn't tell their other children this for another seven years. It is very difficult for me to imagine a capable psychologist believing that it was a good idea to tell this kind of outrageous lie to his children over something that mattered this much. I mean, it was literally the life or death of one of their siblings. But I gather that Dr. Erickson genuinely believed he was making the right call. So why is that?
2: Everybody he consulted said this is what you should do. Put this child away, forget he exists, and act as if he doesn't exist. And you know, present among his friends were other famous psychologists, Margaret Mead the anthropologist. They all gave the same advice. This is what parents were told to do. And he was no different from any other parent in that respect. What I find interesting and powerful about that example and all the examples is they couldn't carry it off. The Mm -hmm. other children in the family, whether they actively knew it or not, could not understand why their family was so altered. So Eric Erickson's daughter, couldn't understand why her family couldn't move past this death, and that they really didn't seem to be able to grieve in an ordinary way. Well, they couldn't grieve in an ordinary way because this child was still alive. But she felt throughout her life, and it was years before she knew about her brother Neil, she always felt there was something missing, something wrong, something absent. So. Erickson was following the prescriptions of the day. Very few people violated those prescriptions. And it had serious consequences for relationships within the family.
1: In your chapter on learning the secrets of one's conception, you talk about how learning the true identity of a biological parent can shake our sense of cultural heritage. So here's just one of the many examples that you give. When Randy Lindsay discovered that the man he thought was his father was not, in fact, his genetic father, he worried that he would be severed from what he thought of and valued as his family's Scottish roots, an ancestry of, quote, fighting clans and kilted pipers. I find myself going back and forth about this. You know, on the one hand, does... Arizonan Randy Lindsay, with no biological connection, it turns out, to a Scottish ancestor, have a claim to being Scottish? On the other hand, you know, he has exactly as much upbringing in Scottish culture as he had before he knew the truth about his paternity. Many people think there needs to be a biological or genetic link in order to claim a connection to a culture or heritage. Do you think that belief is becoming less popular? And if so, does DNA testing play a role? Actually, I
2: think that belief is becoming more popular.
1: Mm -hmm. I
2: think DNA testing means that people are looking for their roots, and they're looking for their biological roots, and they're looking for cultures, whether or not they knew they had them represented in their... DNA. So I think that people are starting to, and I have no evidence for this whatsoever, except for the fact that people are signing up in droves for DNA testing through places like ancestry.com. I think people are starting to claim, increasingly, a biological tie to people, to places, to cultures, to histories that they really haven't experienced in any other way in their lives.
1: This connects to my next question as well because I'm I'm really struggling a little bit with this. I find it really fascinating. So, in your chapter called Suddenly Jewish: Discovering Hidden Ancestry, you write Within months of learning her Jewish ancestry, Heidi Neumark traveled with her son to Germany. Because of his own contemporary interests, this son was thrilled to discover that his paternal great-great-grandmother was, quote, the daughter of a Jewish brewery owner. Neumark muses rhetorically, why is it so compelling to find connections between previous generations and ourselves? And she rhetorically answers her own question, I think it may be because it makes our own lives feel less random, part of a larger design and pattern. But Heidi had been a Lutheran pastor for nearly 30 years when she found out that she had these Jewish ancestors. They all could have lived easily lived their whole lives, believing that they came from entirely Lutheran stock and understanding their lives as part of that design and pattern. Can you help me figure out what to make of this? Like, how do we assess the degree to which our ancestry matters?
2: It's really a challenging question. I think we are living in an era where people think that genes matter. I mean, I think Heidi Newmark is an interesting example because she does not shed her Lutheran convictions. She says, I've been a Lutheran pastor. This is what I believe. On the other hand, she also does embrace her Jewish relatives and understand that she's tied to people who she knew nothing about in the past. I think it helps people see a place in history. It's fascinating to find out that you are part of such a significant historical event as the Holocaust. I think people who find out that they've got ancestry who are African-American, find it thrilling is an odd word to use, but it's also an appropriate word. People want to connect to significant historical events, even if they're the most painful events of the 19th and 20th centuries.
1: You note that most of the authors of the memoirs that you consider in your book forgave the harm that they believe their parents inflicted through the keeping or imposition of family secrets. And the authors come to be sympathetic about why their parents acted as they did. Why do you think that is?
2: You know, I'm torn about that. I think one reason is maybe that's what publishers want. Publishers say, and on a high note give me a resolution that we all can live with. And they say, okay, here's the resolution we all can live with. My parents were doing the best they could. I forgive them. It's a story of redemption. It's a story that leaves some optimism. I think a different kind of explanation is nobody wants to be thrust out of their family. Some people revealed these secrets and they were thrust out. And that was a matter of Great loss, a matter of great pain, a matter of great anxiety. So I think we can be a little cynical about it and say, this is the story that can be told. Or we can be a little bit more sympathetic about it and say, this is where people need to end up because they don't want to lose people who are important to them. And I think both things actually are true.
1: You write that, by and large, when grown children decide to write memoirs about their family's secrets, quote, in claiming their right to write their own stories, they gloss over the costs that those revelations might have for their parents or decide that the benefits to themselves outweigh those costs. But they also might not be able to fully anticipate what those costs will be. How much weight do you think the memoirists should give to the effect of the revelations on their parents?
2: I think people have needs to say certain things. And as with any action we take in our lives, we don't always know what the consequences are going to be. We might have to hurt people if we're gonna act in certain kinds of ways. We make choices. We operate with a moral stance the best one we can find for a situation. But I think people who write memoirs face um, serious moral questions. And I don't know how to answer what's right or wrong, because we don't even know always what the consequences are going to be. I think you take risks in writing a memoir as you take risks in living your daily life.
1: I love that a consideration of family secrets took us everywhere from how misguided the leading psychological minds of a time, like Eric Erickson and his colleagues can be, to what it should take to claim a cultural heritage, to the potentially deleterious effects of publishers on the accuracy of memoir. I also wanna back up for a second and say, It's more than a little dispiriting to hear Margaret point out that we've cycled back to fostering many of the same family secrets that were prevalent in the 1950s. I am, of course, aware of the reversal of Roe and the passage of the don't say gay laws, but thinking about these societal changes in the context of family secrets opens for me a kind of portal to really pondering the shame that they cause, the silence and the dismay and the withdrawal that perspective hits differently, you know, more viscerally, than thinking about the evisceration of rights more abstractly.
0: I agree. I'm also thinking about the costs of keeping the kinds of family secrets that aren't reflected in legislation. There's an emotional toll to not knowing your ancestry, whether it's because your family came to this country willingly or unwillingly as part of a diaspora and you've lost the details of your heritage, Or because a family decides to hide the truth about its Jewish or Black or gay ancestors, even from its own members. The other side of the joy of discovery that many people find through DNA testing is that cost of feeling cut off from the relatives that came before you.
1: There are so many fascinating facets to this conversation, and I find myself longing to have episodes about each of them. But for now, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
0: As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram.
1: Many thanks to our producer, Jean-Franco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at julie juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh,
0: come listen to book Dreams with